Welcome to an incomplete guide to world domination, a podcast by creators for creators, because together we can take over the world. I'm your host, Brianna Toiber. Hi, I'm Jean Leggett, and I am currently the Chief Executive Officer of One More Story Games. We're an indie games company just based out of close to Toronto, Canada. And our focus is on narrative games. We have built a game engine that we designed specifically for people who are storytellers, but don't necessarily know the ins and outs of coding to make their own point and click narrative based adventure games. People like me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, we have done summer camps. We have taught kids as young as eight years old how to use the game engine. So there's hope for you yet, Brianna. Yeah, I just need to sit down and work with it. That would require having more than five minutes, but it will happen one of these days and it'll be great. So why don't we start with like what led you to create Story Stylus and creating One More Story Games? Well, you know a little bit about us, but because your listeners don't, I will share the story. Blair, my husband and co-founder. So Blair and I have been together for well over 23 years and seven years ago, Blair had a near-death experience while we were working Uh, for he was working for Zynga Dallas and they were creating Castleville anyways uh, due to a medical error he nearly died because of a medical overdose and um, so that was a really difficult time for us so we decided we were going to come back to Canada where we're originally from and he wanted to work on this game engine because he felt like you know what he's watched the success of like electronic arts and Zynga the two companies that he'd previously worked for do very well but the focus is not really on story. And he wanted to give back to the people in his writer communities that are really big fans of RPGs because he's a huge RPG nut. So that for him was the driving mission. And I actually have a stand-up comedy background and an English degree. And I was focused more on doing like administration and also life coaching and teaching laughter yoga. But oddly enough, about a year into it, we decided to join forces So I'm the hustler to Blair's hacker, and he does the development of the software, and I do everything else. How exactly does laughter yoga work? (laughs) That's a whole other podcast, Brianna. In a nutshell, laughter yoga is like tantric sex, but for laughing. And it's just intentional laughter. So you can, your body cannot tell the difference between real and fake laughter. So we could just be sitting here and I can be like, (laughs) ha, ha. And I could probably go on for close to an hour and your brain just gets like a massive supercharge from that. And it's, it's enough to leave you feeling naturally high for like days because I, I used to teach those classes and, and people would call me back and say, I am still feeling like I am buzzing from it. So it just, it releases your endorphins, your, all of your good oxytocin, oxycontin. No, it's the oxytocin hormones in your body and also releases anti-aging hormones too. So yeah, it's just, it's just a mindfulness practice like any other mindfulness technique. And you know what? Running a startup has a lot of misery in it. So having the laughter yoga skills has certainly kept us sane over the last six years. There's definitely going to in the future be a separate episode focusing on mindfulness and how to maintain your sanity because we all need help with that especially me (laughs) (laughs) I think a, a large part of the world that we live in today there's this huge expectation that we have to do all things all at once always at 100% energy and one of the things that I've more and more realized over the last couple of years is listen there are going to be times where your hustle game is super strong. And then there are going to be times where you have circumstances in your life like we had this year that are really going to throw you off your game and you need to give your space to give yourself space to breathe, to rest and to be okay that you're not 100%, right? This is not about being a rock star every moment of your life. And I think that's a false assumption that we've created. So I certainly give that advice to people who are in game dev. Like there are going to be days and months and maybe even years where you don't work on your game, but you're still a game dev. Just put it down and make sure you're taking care of yourself first. Yeah, it's it's tough in any career field, especially in game dev, just because 
there's some interesting issues starting to rear their head in the industry. Um, and when I say starting to rear their head, I mean people are starting to get more vocal about it. Not like in the sense that it's just starting to happen. Stuff that's been going on for a while. Just systemic issues that need to be addressed. And it's it's getting really tough. Mm-hmm. Well, definitely. I've had the privilege of being able to share a little bit of our story internationally in the last year and a half. And the talk that I give typically is titled, you know, the five year, one more story. Uh, what is it? One more game. The story of our five year journey as an indie game studio or something like that. And when I came back from my last trip to New Zealand to share our story, I realized, you know, a more appropriate title would be when it all goes to shit, resilient survival and joy in game dev. And that would give people a better expectation of what they're going to get when they hear me talk, because I get really honest about, you know, a lot of game devs get into games because they're like, oh, I love making games. I love playing games and making games would be so much fun. And it's like, you know what, making games is a business and it's okay to do it as a hobby, but as a business, you're going to need to be prepared to do a lot of hard stuff. Either you're going to need to take on clients to do essentially farming out your work to other people because you're probably not going to make the money that you need to survive from selling your games. That's a hard truth that nobody wants to talk about. Building a sustainable and balanced studio that has a culture of respect is a talent and needs some very dedicated perspective around building it. And then the other thing is, you know, you're going to make good decisions and you're going to make bad decisions and you're going to hire people that are great. And you're going to hire people that blackmail your company like we experienced two years ago. So, you know, it's it's the range of experiences and, and it's about finding the community and other people to say, hey, you know what, this really shitty thing happened to me and I'm stuck. How do I get out of it? We as an industry really need to be talking more about good business practices mm-hmm. and and definitely in, and, and diversity and inclusion needs to be a big part of that conversation. For sure. I've definitely seen more conversations about that cropping up and a lot of people speaking out and being vocal about it and also being supportive of some of the people who have gotten the short end of the stick with a lot of stuff that's happening in the industry. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Share a little bit about your journey. I already know a lot of it, but I feel like listeners would be interested to hear more about story stylus. I want to start off by saying that one of the advantages to being older, so I'll be 43 in May, I have already had a career and a life before games. Like so back in 19 back in 2014 I joined Blair. So I was actually 37 or just about to turn 37 when I joined Blair in this thing to to work on one more story games. And you know, for us, we had just come back from living in the states. We didn't have any money in the bank, but we also had just finished paying off our student loans and we didn't have a lot of debt. And we agreed. It's like, you know what? Why don't you do what you love? We'll each do what we love for one year and we'll see where we're at at the end of the year. Blair went off to work on his prototype for Story Stylus. And I was doing like the public speaking, the mindfulness workshop, stand-up comedy and stuff like that. And, And it just became very apparent that I probably would have more success raising money for us than I would setting up my my vast coaching empire, which actually was growing. And I had a decent income every month from working with my clients. And so, yeah, we joined forces. Our first investment came from a friend that I had met while we lived in Dallas. And she said, listen, you know, my dad's just passed away. You look like you're doing something interesting. Could I invest in your company? And it was a, it was a small investment. It was $15,000. And, and that, you know, that was like huge for us, right? We just, the only overhead we had was our office and the lease on the equipment that we had leased. We had six workstations, you know, two monitors, a laptop, and then all the software each. And that was the kind of financial risk that Blair and I were willing to take. I think that's one is how much risk are you willing to take? And for us having paid off a hundred thousand in student loans and also knowing that we're far enough in our careers that if this went, you know, if this blew up and it didn't work, we could always go back to find jobs and we could pay off whatever loan we had from leasing or equipment or whatever. It was 
it was not so freaky where it was like, oh my God, you know, if we fail, it's going to be the end of our lives. We'll be financially ruined. It was a reasonable risk to take, right? So she came on board, she invested. We were supposed to have another line of credit available to us that did not come through. And so we were in the summer and we're like, well, how do we keep this thing going? Because if we can't find any more money, we're done. And we actually did a letter to friends and family. And we just basically, it was like a seven page letter, like you would a a micro business document. And it's like, here's who we are. By then we had been together for 17 years. So people in our, I call them my barn raisers, like the Amish culture and religion has this thing where if you need your barn raised or a house raised, everybody in the community will drop what they're doing. They'll show up and they will build a barn in a day or two. And so we sent out the letters to our, the people that we feel that way about. And within that first week, I think there was something like $60,000 that was committed to our business. And we said very clearly at the bottom of the letter, like, we think this thing will work. We're not sure there's no guarantees and we can't guarantee you that you'll get your money back. And by the end of the month, we'd raised over $100,000 and by the end of the year, $170,000. And we still weren't even paying ourselves, right? This was, we had some staff that we were paying, some that we weren't. And then just over the course of the five years, more people would come on board because they were just very jazzed about what we were doing. And we've raised over half a million Canadian, which is like, I think $4 US. (laughs) (laughs) With the exchange rate, it's probably close to, it's definitely less than 400,000 US, which is not a lot of money for a team that fluctuated from two to 18 people over four years. Yeah, You know what? We kept building it and we prototyped it. I jokingly said in the summer of 2014, we'll get parents to have their children, like the parents will pay us to have their children be our bug testers <laughs> and we'll just call it summer camp. <laughs> So we call it summer camp and parents paid us and the kids, um, they had a lot of fun. They gave us a lot of brutal feedback and I was like, great. I never want to do that again. It was an experience. And then we did it again the next year. We were able to leverage some of the relationships that we had started building. We had started to tap into the community that was excited about the work that we were doing. And, you know, Shopify came on board and PayPal came on board and we had sponsors and we could have a 50-50 ratio of boy-girl versus the previous year of like three girls and 17 boys. I would say that while we had this big vision in mind of like, oh, let's help adult authors take their short stories and turn them into games for adult games consumers, what we've seen it morph into is, hey, you know what? Kids love this. People love being able to take their short stories and turn them into interactive games. We've been doing that for the last couple of years where you know that there's a project that we've been working on forever and a day. Yeah. It was called Shakespeare's Landlord. It's been renamed to The Body in Shakespeare Park, and it's an adaptation of a Charlene Harris novel. I I think I actually still have those books from where I bought them all. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's a good series. It's, Mm -hmm. it's a series like for most listeners, they would be like Charlene Harris. That seems familiar. She wrote the True Blood series that uh, HBO, well, Suki Stackhouse, that HBO adapted as True Blood. And this series, the Lily Bard series is about a sexual assault survivor who also becomes an amateur sleuth because she's about to be implicated in a murder. And when I read the series in 2014, I was like, this is the series that I want to adapt as a novel um, from a novel into a game. And so that's what we've been working on for quite a long time. And I'm really excited to finish it this this spring because we're going to be doing summer camps again in the in the summer. I'm still blown away by how gorgeous the artwork is for that. It looks amazing. Thank you. I'm not gonna not gonna embarrass you, but I don't know if you've played the one hour demo that's online. It's it's pretty darn good. <laughs> do Do you want to share the story of how you got the ability to do that? You ask Charlene. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. I mean, for us, we we always knew that we were going to be targeting. We wanted to target women gamers who are over the age of thirty right? So most people don't realize that the average age of a gamer is 36 and the average age of a female gamer is 43. And the largest 
fastest growing market segment is women over 50. So it's interesting. And, and that's basically been the case for the last five years, actually. So what's mm-hmm. been interesting is why not find a partner that is already writing to that demographic? And so when we met Charlene at a writer's conference, I just went up to her and said, hey, have you turned your book into games before? And she said, no, we haven't. Or actually, no, that's not what she said. She said, we tried that once before and it didn't work out. So they had done the hidden objects game with Jane Jensen and there were supposed to be multiple episodes and the episodes were not completed. So that's why I'm like, I'm really, really determined to finish this game because she's already been burned once before, but more importantly, it's, it's an important story. You know, I've also traveled the world talking about responsible and ethical game design. How do you create a story that's about an assault survivor in a way that is sensitive to people who have had that experience. I am an assault survivor and, you know, I want to be very responsible about consulting counselors and other people who have experienced that. It's like, what is the fine line between exploring that subject matter and exploiting that subject matter, especially with the Me Too movement that's been happening? Exactly. You see a lot of issues with that also with mental illness and media, like the amount of I'll be watching something and it feels like every single time I show that someone like like goes crazy and does something like, oh, they're schizophrenic or oh, they're this or no, they're that. And it's not everyone like it's it's feeding into a stigma around something that most people don't understand to begin with because they haven't experienced it. Maybe they don't know anyone that's experienced that's one of the things that we've been trying to do as we craft the narrative for the lily game is in the novel there's not really an exploration deeply about the therapeutic things that lily could be going through as she's working to heal herself like it's been four years since the events in memphis have happened the big event where she was harmed And, you know, what we've done is we've actually created therapeutic techniques and put them into the game. So she has journals, she talks about her therapist, she has touchstones that, you know, the material things in her home that if she touches, that she can help sort of mollify her anxiety and panic attacks, right? So it's just creating this awareness. When she sees the dead body for the first time, you hear an accelerated heartbeat, you hear her breathing more deeply. And she has to keep those things in check when she's in front of other people, especially people who don't know what she's been through. So it's, it's the constant dance of like, how much stimulus do we want to give the player in a way that is still, I guess, uh, friendly and not overly dark or serious. And also something that's not going to have a negative effect on someone who has, well, I don't know how many people have been through quite what Lily went through, but have been in similar situations. Yeah. I mean, for a long time, I was I was promoting the game as like, Nancy Drew meets Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. And then I realized, uh, you know what? It is a more mature Nancy Drew, but Girl with a Tra- Dragon Tattoo is incredibly visceral. It was shocking. It was sensationalistic in its portrayal of rape it was just over the top and I thought you know what? that's not really what I want to convey to people so I've been going with like Nancy Drew meets Gone Girl it's it's just a more mature Nancy Drew and when you think about the fact that one in six women have been the target of an attempted assault it's I, I wish more people understood the statistics around not only assault, but harassment and the various forms of the, the spectrum of what the sexual harassment and assault experience is, then maybe they would realize why this is like, this is really pervasive. And maybe we can have that conversation rather than just going, oh, well, that doesn't happen. It's like, it happens to almost every single woman I know is likely to have experienced harassment, groping, leering, or outright like has been inappropriately touched or assaulted. So it's it's much more prevalent than we want to talk about and acknowledge. 
And I'm hoping that this is um, a gateway into that conversation in the game space. Yeah, I I hope so too. And I'm definitely hoping for a positive response to this game because I know y'all have been putting a lot of work into it and I'm really excited to see it excited to see it finished. Thank you. Well I'd love to get your feedback on the on the one hour demo that's out there. We had some really strong feedback. We actually had to go back and rewrite it because we showed it to Charlene in May of 2018 and she wasn't happy with it. So we parted ways with the writer that we were working on. And we just came back and we stripped out the, some of the game mechanics that we had in there and just focused on the story because that is what we do really well at OMSG is we're about the narrative. So for a lot of people, they'll say, oh my gosh, there's a lot of reading in this game. It's like, yes, we're a book meets game. And in fact, if you go to bookmeetsgame.com, you'll end up at onemorestorygames.com just as a redirect. We're focused on re-engineering or hacking literacy through video games. It's if you like reading, you're going to love playing our games. And if you don't like reading, well, you know, there are other games out there for you. <laughs> uh, uh, if, if you don't like reading, you're going to miss out on some fun stuff on some of the games that you'll have. I still absolutely love Daniel's Inferno. Oh, thank you. I, that is a, a, I'm very fond of that game. So for listeners, it is like, um, think of it this way. It's Monty Python meets Dante's Divine Comedy. And you just go through the nine circles of hell. And and I play the voice of Satan on the very last level. So you'll have to get to the last level to be able to hear me to share the wisdom, the deep wisdom of life. Everything about that ending is so good. <laughs> Thank you. Like every time in my playthrough, I can't help but notice there's a character with a very, very similar name to mine as in a character named Brianna in Lust. Oh, oh, really? Well, we wrote that before we knew you, so. (laughs) Yeah, that's the only reason I haven't already given you a good-natured hard time about putting me in hell. That's so funny. (laughs) Well, you know, we thought about putting our our blackmailer in hell, but, you know, we don't want to make it too obvious. (laughs) Yeah. (sighs) I, I remember that. That was a fun situation. That was a tough situation. That was a tough situation. And you know what? The the interesting thing is, and um, because the games industry is a very small community, the more people that I talk to about it, the more people have either had that experience or they've had that experience with that person. So that's why it's really important to focus on building your community and having the trusted barn raisers, either inside games or outside of games, but have people that you can trust to get some perspective. You know, I remember the very first time that I was harassed online. It was like 1996 and I was playing Clue, you know, the the game with Colonel Mustard and um, Scarlet. And I was playing competitively and I was ranked number one in the world. I was really, really freaking good, Brianna. That's impressive. Thank you. I was like number one, I think. I didn't know that was. You didn't know that was a thing? I had no idea that was a thing. That's really kind of cool, though. I love that it's a thing. <laughs> it's cool and super nerdy. And so there I was ranked number one in the world consistently for about three to six months. And there was a guy that just really was upset that I was winning all the time. You know, I wasn't, I didn't have a hundred percent win record, but it was, it was up there. And this guy spent so much of his offline time trying to find ways to add me to like pornography websites and junk mail and like harassment And I was telling my friend and she's like, oh man, I've been on the internet for like five years, six years. That's normal. Like, well, it's not normal, but it's like harassment happens. And so it's when you feel like you're alone and you're frustrated, just go and talk to somebody else. Chances are you'll find an empathetic ear or at least somebody else who's been through the experience, whether you're frustrated with a contractor or you're struggling with finding funding you know, for the game devs that are listening to this, use Twitter. Twitter, game dev Twitter has some really incredible resources out there. It really does. Twitter's great for creatives in general because there are just so many wonderful, delightful, creative human beings on there. And they're most of them, they're really friendly. They want to talk to you. They're willing to share advice if you ask nicely. Yeah. And it's just kind of a good way to make friends with people. Absolutely. And you know, I have grown my network significantly through Twitter. I think at some point in the next three months, I'll probably hit 5000 followers. Not that that matters to me. But it's, 
and I would say, cause I go through and I delete bots. So, you know, those are actually all human people that are following me that are excited about what we're doing. And when you develop sincere relationships with people, people will remember you for years and you can mm-hmm. activate, ask, share your resources with them. And you know what? That always comes back to you. Like we have gotten as far as mm-hmm. we've had because other people helped us along the way. And so we're always happy to give back, whether it's being on a podcast or speaking at a conference or sharing resources. We all win when the rising tide, because it rising tide lifts all boats. Yeah, uh, I feel like a lot of people especially if they're trying to do something different or like some sort of creative endeavor that doesn't sort of match what everyone else around them is doing. It's like, we feel like we have to do it all alone. Like it's us against the world, but it's really not like, even if, yeah, well, yeah. Cause with the two podcasts I do, I am more or less doing it by myself, but I have so many people I can go to with questions. I have people who are willing to help me out. I had a recording where like the audio quality had some issues. So a friend had a program and he offered to run the recording through it and he was able to clean it up a little bit and it ended up being a different issue. So there wasn't a whole lot he could do, but just the power of like having a network of people that you can reach out to and you can go to when you have issues. Like there are communities for that everywhere. You just have to find it and you got to be nice. Exactly. Yes. Yes. (laughs) So Blair and I have, after our adventures of being between funding this year and and doing our two month nomadic adventure slash homelessness, just as we were leaving and packing up our office and our house, you know, what happened was our landlord needed to make some renovations to his house because he had had our suite that we were living in was actually an illegal suite. Didn't know that. We'd been there for six and a half years. That's awkward. Well, you know, and I just said, I feel like this is a sign. We haven't been happy here for years. Let's just throw everything in storage, grab what we can, throw it in a car and we'll go and we'll visit friends. Like we have friends everywhere because of the relationship work that we do. And let's see what feels like home to us. Right. And so when we announced that we were leaving Barry and we were going on this adventure, a number of things started to open up for us and all through Twitter. So one was I got a three month contract to do some mentoring via Skype for 33 women game developers, women and non-binary game developers in Melbourne. That's really cool. It's It was really, really cool. And that's led to other things, which I might talk about in this podcast. Oh, yeah. And then the other piece of it was somebody from Sheridan College in their game design program said, we didn't know that you were interested in possibly teaching because I said, does anybody, you know, have teaching positions? And so they snagged us and we started that whole conversation at the beginning of our trip. And by the time we had finished the trip, we had already secured the jobs at the college. So Blair's teaching 100 undergraduate students how to code. And we both teach a small class of postgraduate students. He teaches them coding and I'm doing story missions and quests. We're having a lot of fun. It's the income that we need to supplement our game design and our games company because all of our money and resources have been tied up into this one game. Until that game is finished, there is nothing else coming in. And so that's actually another piece of advice that I give a lot of game devs is make sure that you have a decent part-time or a full-time income that's coming in to support you while you're doing your indie dev life. It's one thing that a lot of indie devs don't talk about on Twitter is how they actually support themselves. Maybe they have a partner and so they either have little to no income, but their partner supports them Mm -hmm. and it's, they don't talk about that. So you feel like you're a failure if your game sales are not the thing that are sustaining you. And it's something that I'd really like the industry to speak more about, to be honest. It's hard to get something creative started, any type of content creation it takes a while to gain traction, it takes a while to gain a following, and it takes a while to get any money from it, much less enough to be able to support yourself. So yeah, you got to have something on the outside, even if it's a job in retail, 
like if you're lucky you might get something that's involved in something you're interested in but sometimes you just gotta take a job that's a job with a paycheck that's the thing and I think we would have approached this from a very very different perspective had we had different exposures to game creators like Blair worked as an employee of AAA studios right so he was making really good bank and his network were other AAA employees we haven't been part of the indie space until we joined it six years ago. And it's a very different space. It's a very different perspective on the world, right? Those, a lot of the AAA employees, a lot of them, they go in, they do their, you know, eight, 12, hopefully not 12 hours, but you know, their eight, 10, 12 hour days, and then they go home and they're on their salary. That's what they get. Not all of them are interested in participating in the games community online. They're just like, that's my job. Whereas you do have some people who are creating a name for themselves, especially if they're in narrative design, because narrative designers can hop from studio to studio. But, you know, your everyday coders, we don't see a lot of rock star coders in games. It's typically, it's the designers. It's the designers that have this, this reputation to them. So had I known what I know now, I would have probably kept my coaching clients because I was making really decent money with coaching for a very few hours. And I love what I do. But the nice thing is I actually get to do and bring my old life into games now because I'm doing life coaching and business coaching with game developers now, in addition to writing the game. And I am having so much fun. I'm having so much fun, Brianna. I never thought it was going to come full circle like this. That makes me really happy to hear because I know y'all had a bit of a rough time with the house situation and it's not been the easiest of rides, but it makes me both happy for you and hopeful for myself that like you've put in all this work and you've come so far. Thank you. Well, and you know, I've, I've had people ask us, how did you do it? Am I... We are, I mean, we're doing this together, which makes it riskier. And I would not suggest that you do this with your partner. I always like, I love my husband. We've been together for 23 and a half years. That's a long time. And, and you should not go into business with your, the person that you love. And it's not a statement or of, of our relationship. It's just, this is realism, right? It's hard enough to start a business It's even harder when you do it with somebody that you love, because at the end of the day, you want to have pillow talk, not payroll talk. (laughs) And it's very hard to separate the two. My biggest stress was when we had people on our regular payroll. What happens with a lot of employers is this happens across industry. This is not just limited to games. Employers will make the sacrifices to pay their employees before they pay themselves. Mm -hmm. And that put us in significant debt. I would do that thing differently too, right? That's, That's where the whole pay yourself first comes in. And that's like an age old motto that's been around for years and years. Yeah, we've, we've learned a lot. I'm actually, the one thing that I like about the mental cleansing of the 2020 as a, as a new decade and a clean slate mm-hmm. is, you know, it's kind of like OMSG 2.0, right? We get to reinvent ourselves by having the experience that we already have and saying, listen, we've already done all the wrong things. Let us show you what we can do right with all of the knowledge that we've accumulated. Actually, a big part of why I started creating this podcast is I wanted to give people like you who have been on this road for a while a chance to sort of share your knowledge looking back at some of the like some of the mistakes that you've made, some of the challenges that you face and how you got past them with people like me who are just at the beginning of whatever it is that they're doing. I've also had several people on who are also at the beginning of starting their creative career, whatever that may be. So people could see that they're not alone. They're not alone. We're we're far less alone than we ever think we are. And I think that, you know, what was I, I was just watching something this evening And, oh, Blair and I are watching a series on Netflix called Rotten, and it's about secret secret conspiracies in various food industries. So we're watching this thing on uh, wine growing regions in, in China. And so they've taken the land adjacent to the Gobi Desert, 
and they have actually turned it into agricultural land and they're growing wines and this one and like which is kind of crazy because China is not known for wine but they've been winning awards and this lady says for the first 10 years we didn't make any money but this isn't about making the money like that money is coming because we've been building the infrastructure Mm -hmm. and I just looked at Blair and I said you know that is that's it right there like Airbnb and Uber despite their cultural issues that they have with the, um, you know, like Uber taking advantage of the gig economy and things like that, they as companies did not become household names until they were into their like year six or seven or eight, because they still had to, Airbnb had to convince people that it was okay to stay in strangers' houses for one, right? They had to change the culture of what it is that they were trying to do. There's nothing that really is an overnight success. People have worked really hard at building the companies that they build. So we knew we were getting in this for the long haul. Has it gone longer than I thought it was going to before we got significant investment? Yes. I I really did think that we would have had, that we would have found the people that we were looking for, for like the bigger kind of check that we wanted for investing in our company. That said, We have also been very, very specific about the kind of investor that we want because we didn't want somebody who just wanted to give us money. We wanted to find people that were in alignment with our vision. And that's that's just a core principle of ours is to work with people that we respect. That makes sense, especially with like what you're building and a lot of the other stuff that you've talked about both with me tonight and just in general, like Actually, if you ever want any sort of encouragement, this is me talking to the listeners. If you ever want or need any kind of encouragement, follow Jean. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Aww. She is one of the, you're one of the most encouraging people I've ever met. You're like a little ray of sunshine, even when you're going through a rough time, which I know that's not easy. <laughs> Thank you. You know what? You're going to make me cry. I was talking to somebody else today who, you're one of the very few people that I allow into my close knit community on Facebook. Like I, as a public speaker, somebody who's been doing this for 15, 16 years, I used to let anybody who wanted to add me on Facebook, add me. And then in the last year or so, I started trimming down from like 1600 people all the way down to like 400 people. Right. I'm just, I'm, I'm interested in cultivating deep, meaningful relationships with people. So you, by virtue of being on my Facebook list, um, get to see me at my most vulnerable. And I, I share more of the vulnerability on Facebook than I do on Twitter. And it's this person I was chatting to today. She said, you just, even in your moments of vulnerability, you always offer us hope, right? Things might be really hard, but there's always this element of hope. And I was like, Oh, that was really nice to hear. And through everything that we've been through in the last six years as this startup and 23 years of our relationship, we've gone through some really crazy times together. But in all of it, we've always had that vision of what that future looks like. And, you know, we've always found a way to get through it. Like the fact that I created a hashtag for when we were homeless to be story C to C, and I was going to do a documentary (laughs) on Canadian game developers using my phone as we traveled across Canada. Like nobody needed to know that we were homeless. It's like, this is an adventure. We're going to do a documentary. And, you know, (laughs) I, I wasn't worried about the optics of it too much because I thought it would just make for a more interesting chapter in the book. You know, I'm, I'm writing all of this down. I'm going to share all of it, all the good, the bad, the ugly, because I think there's valuable human connections to be made when you share who you are. And, and that's why I really love what you're doing, Brianna, is you're giving people a space to share their stories. You're giving people a space to share their vulnerability and also to celebrate their strengths. And that's really important that we do both. Yeah, because too much in this world, it's like, well, you mentioned like you have to be perfect, you have to be 100%, you have to get it right the first try, and there's all this pressure, and then we have this vision of what our life is supposed to look like, and what we're supposed to be, and 
it's not actually how life works. None of those visions are actually realistic. Yep. And life is messy. Things aren't always going to work out. You're going to fail a lot. You're going to fail. <laughs> You're going to fail. It's going to hurt. Your heart's going to get broken. But, you know, you're going to get back up. And there's a saying, as long as you get up more times than you fall, you're going to be okay. And I am the queen of getting back up, right? Like I, I'll take a punch and I'll be like, <laughs> I'm like, okay, let's go. <laughs> um, yeah. It's, that's what you got to have. You got to have that, that resiliency. Yeah. It's kind of bonkers. I really love, I love game dev. I love I think more than anything, I don't necessarily love playing games. What I love is enabling people to create and I love coaching them and championing them, whatever it is that they want to do. So that's something that has been in me since I was like eight. That was the first time I ever coached or championed somebody. I remember it very specifically with somebody being bullied at school. <laughs> and for Blair, I mean, he's been creating RPGs since he was eight and, and I love that we both get to be our best selves, our most passionate selves together. Like, it's so rare to see a partnered team that have stuck it out this long, right? It's, there's not too many couples in games that have that experience. So I'm very blessed in that way. It's not an easy road, but having someone that has your back and that supports you can make a huge difference. And even with all the times that things are going to fall apart and not work out and fall flat and or take forever to get anywhere, you just have to keep going. You have to be stubborn. But also, like, sometimes I actually had an interview for a job where I was straight up told after 15 minutes that he didn't think I had what he was looking for. And that hurt. Like I, I had to, t I had to take a minute to have a little mini breakdown. It was, it was not an easy thing, especially because I've been trying to move into something different that's not retail. Yeah, uh, yeah. And so it, it was tough. But about like fifteen or twenty minutes later, when I finally got it all out of my system, I was kind of like neutral for a bit. Mm -hmm. But then within like five minutes, uh, I had all these plans for stuff that I want to do. And I'm just like, I'm just going to use this as fuel to go and build something great and do what I want to do because I'm going to find a way to make what I want to do a reality. Exactly. I will tell you, when I finished my bachelor's degree, I didn't know what I wanted to do. The clock was ticking. So I was like, oh, well, let me just tack on an honors so I can stay in school for a little bit longer. And then Blair had finished school and he didn't have a job yet. I was like, okay, well, you know what? I don't think I really want to do my honors. Let me just truncate my degree here. I have my, my, uh, my credits to graduate. And then the following year, I went to apply for a master's. And I wanted to do a master's in the English program at Simon Fraser, specifically with a focus on how the internet was going to change the publishing industry. And they said, no one here can help you with that because it was like 2001. This was, this was early days. <laughs> this was early days. Ebooks were not really a thing. And, and really cool though. Right. And like, they were like, oh well, there's, there's, there's nobody here that can help you with. And I'm like, I know the internet is going to radically revolutionize the publishing industry. And they're like, nope, sorry, can't help you. So I got rejected from that master's program. And I was like, okay, I want to do a master's mostly because I didn't know what the hell to do with my life. And uh, I'm like, you know, <laughs> give me yeah. another master's program. <laughs> and I, well, I think that's what happens with a lot of people is they just, they stay in school because they're not sure what they should be doing with their life. And so I applied to a second master's program, which was more of a general studies humanities program. Again, I was fascinated by the kinds of things that they would be discussing, like deeper thinking things. And, you know, I just, I really enjoy having conversations and thinking about the world and thinking about cultures and how we all interact and, um, and grow from things. Yep. Nope. Got rejected from that as well. It's like, you know what? In a way, it's a good thing because I think that if I had gone on to my master's, I likely would have wanted to do a PhD 
and I likely would have been very unhappy in academia. I don't think that academia is structured in a way that would make me happy. I am actually really happy being my own boss and working my own hours. And I'm most happy when I'm leading and championing a team. So uh, you know what? It may have taken me 16 years to get to the point where I have my own company, but all of the life experience that I had after that, it all, it all came together. So I think there's a lot of pressure on people, especially in their twenties to have things figured out, to, (laughs) to get that career, to get that student loan paid off. And then, you know, the clock is ticking. You should, you should have a down payment on a house by the time you're 30. Listen, I'm going to be 43. And unless I use some portion of my inheritance, because my dad passed this year, unless I use a portion of my inheritance, I will not be able to buy a house, right? Like I would not have been able to afford to buy a house and I am going to be 43. And so when I look at people that are my age that went on a different route in their life that did not take the chances of starting their own businesses, you know, they have, they have different lives. They also have different problems, we all mm-hmm. have different problems. So just stay in your own lane, focus on what you want to do, make sure you have enough money to put your, you know, gas in your tank, food on your table, roof over your head, and find the thing that sparks you, mm-hmm. right? At the end of the day, you, you need to have some joy in your life. Even if it's not the main thing that you do for a living, you like, well, you should at least like your job. Yeah, here's hoping, right? You need to at least be able to like your job to a certain extent. I <laughs> just like you have to have something, yeah. like something going on that brings life to you. Otherwise, you will go insane because just having that thing that makes you want to get up in the morning and work on something that yeah. can make a huge difference and that can make that job that you just kind of like more tolerable. Absolutely. And you know, um, when, when Blair was unemployed for quite a while after a layoff at EA, I was the primary breadwinner at home and I really was, I had never intended to stay at that job for more than a year. And because it was a maternity leave job and it wasn't at the, the level, like I had already done that kind of job for five years. I really wanted to move up in the world and there wasn't really an opportunity to do that. I'm like, oh my God, this thing is driving me crazy and it's depressing as hell. I shouldn't be doing this at my age. You know, all of the shoulds, shoulds, you know, <laughs> I was shooting all over myself and <laughs> It got to the point where (laughs) it got to the point where I was having panic attacks in the bathroom and and I was so miserable. I was slamming doors at the office. I went to anger management, which you know me, Brianna, like that's laughable. Yeah. Yeah. So life is too short. Life is too short to be miserable. Do your best to find people or opportunities that bring you joy and, you know, like stay, stay on track with that. That's the thing that really matters. You know, at the end of the day, when you die, when you're on your deathbed, it's not going to be about how many pieces of art you created or how many games you shipped or how much success that you had. It's going to be about the people that you have in your life. And if you took the chances that you wanted to take. So if you want to take chances, you got to be okay with the chances not working out. We've had lots of failures, but we've also had lots of success. I literally flew around the globe last year on a speaking tour. And, you know, some people look at us and go, wow, you guys are really successful. I'm like, depends, depends on how you want to define success. To me, success would be, I have a growing studio and I can, I have the funds to be able to hire people. Some people's success is award-winning games. We've got three award-winning games, but it all depends on how you look at things and find what speaks to you hang on to it, find your community, find your barn raisers. And if people are being toxic in your life, drop kick them to the curb. Also, whenever you're taking that leap, be smart about taking a leap. Sure. Do some homework. Be aware of what you're getting into and have backup plans. Just like, just think things through. Be business-minded about it. Be business-minded about it. Think about your the risks, the opportunities, the, the strategy behind it, you know, it's one thing to go into something with like, oh, I want to do this because I'm really passionate about it. I'm like, that's great. But you have to understand that the market is probably saturated for whatever it is that you want to do. And that it's going to require a lot of grit on your part to like 
grin and bear it and get through it. But once you do, you will make a name for yourself. There's like, you can almost guarantee it. Anybody that's going to work really hard. It's just sometimes you should not work that hard to get the success that you need. Sometimes it's not worth it. Yeah, you just, I gotta think things through. Gotta make sure that what you're going after is the right thing. Mm. Because, like, there there are some things that you're going to be passionate about that it might be better to keep that as a side hobby. Peppers. But also, you have to balance the thinking things through with don't get caught in just sitting there and thinking and planning and thinking and planning mm-hmm. to the point where you never actually get out of that stage and do something. Yeah, I, I know a lot of creative people that have been paralyzed by indecision and they're just like well what if I make a wrong decision you know what at this rate you're not going to make any decision so what does it matter so you've, you've got to be you've got to be willing to take a risk at some point yeah also if you make the wrong decision then you know that's the wrong decision so next time you can make the right decision make a different decision yeah you know what you're gonna learn either way you might as well learn doing something you love yep <laughs> exactly yeah i i wouldn't trade all the the learning that we've been through i would do things differently but i i really like who we've become as people as a result of this learning experience and hey people people fly us around the world to hear us hear our story and and that's definitely one of the perks of having put ourselves out there into the world and and taking the risks that we have Yeah, and sometimes when you start like talking about and sharing something that you're passionate about you start attracting the other people that are also passionate about that. Mm-hmm. And it's really easy for something like that to absolutely explode. Like I have another podcast where I interview people's Dungeons and Dragons characters. And I just put a call out on Twitter because I was running into people to interview for that one. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, hey, I need more people. It received over 16,000 impressions. Wow. That's awesome. That must have felt really good, too. Really validating. Also, slightly stressful because then now I have like 140 different interviews to schedule. (laughs) You're like, I might be doing this for a little while. That's really cool, Brianna. Current rate, it's going to take me four years to get through all of it because I do bi-monthly for both of my podcasts. I think you may need to pick that up. So one of the things I'm planning on doing is I'm planning on launching a sort of merch store. Okay. Sometime soon. Like I'm starting with just like um, different designs for notebooks and stuff because people in D&D need notebooks. So I'm going to start like playing around with that to sort of capitalize on some of this interest also because I know it's something people enjoy. And if that works out well and starts making, bringing in some money to help give me a little more breathing space I can start doing more yeah Yeah. I'm actually going to be starting a video series which is basically looking at the soft skills that people need to 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 be able to function healthily in our games industry so you know soft skills like how to be a great networker and how to deal with anxiety how to deal with anxiety how to manage communication skills in tough situations etc cetera, etc cetera. so i'm i'm really excited about that because again it's bringing back the things that i've been trained to do as a coach and also giving back to the games industry and the games community. And it doesn't matter if you're 20 or 50 or 60, because I've spoken to women and game devs of all ages in the last couple of years. You know, you know you're talking about Twitter going viral. Well, I don't know if you saw, I had a tweet thread that went to 2 million impressions, Brianna. Oh, boy. Yeah. Yeah, that was surreal. I didn't know what the heck happened. And all I did was start a conversation to say, no, women in games is not just women under 30, because there's such a, a focus on people that are just coming out of school and da da da. And I'm like, listen, there's a whole world of us that are well over 30. And, and so, so many amazing women who've been in the industry for years jumped on to say, it's me, I'm over here, I'm over here. And it was incredible. It was absolutely incredible and empowering. And that's the kind of magic that I want to connect to. I want, I want for more of our community to grow on the creative side 
I want people to feel empowered. I want more visibility for women who are in creating, especially women who are from underrepresented communities. Anything that I can do to facilitate a healthier games community and game content, that's what I'm here for, honestly, truly. I'm more of a board gamer than I am a video game player. I still buy people's games. I just never have time to play them because I'm working on my own. And it's a privilege and honor to be part of this community on a, in the last couple of years. So basically sounds like you want to change the world. I'm a, I'm a change the world kind of gal. Might as well aim, aim, aim big. <laughs> exactly. Because even if you don't make it, actually, it's, it's really not that, like, people talk like, oh, I can never change the world. I'm like, you can. You can. Make one person's day better. And you've changed the world. Have a positive impact on one person. Exactly. And you've changed the world. We have done summer camps. We haven't done summer camps in the last, since 2014. So it actually will be four years since we've last done a summer camp. And um, Blair, when, uh, Blair and I were at a, like a trade show near our hometown that we just moved out of. And we didn't recognize one of the girls that came up to us because her face had changed so much in three years. And it was Abby. She made this really great game with us. And she's like, Blair, Jean, oh my gosh, I haven't written to you in so long. I wanted to tell you that I started coding after I left your camp because we teach them how to code in Lewis script. She goes, and I, because I knew how to code from your camp, I went into high school and I knew how to code and I felt really confident. And I'm like making GPS collars for dogs. And yeah, like, thank you so much. Listen. If I never make a hit game, I don't care. I would love to make a hit game. I would love to see that kind of revenue coming into our company. And it will come because I do believe in the game that we're making. But knowing that we've made a difference in so many kids' lives and gotten them excited about coding and gotten them excited about storytelling and in games. And, and, and that's so much that I'm grateful for already. So everything else is just icing on top. I think it's easier to change the world if all you're looking for is to have a positive impact. Like the people that are out there like, oh, I want to be the next Steve Job. Not sure if you're going to quite make it there, but how about you just start with having po like have a positive impact. Have Volunteer in your community. Like that's a really big one. We need to have more volunteers in our community. Have people that are volunteering at coding camps you know, put your money and resources into getting girls into coding opportunities and be part of the reason why we have gender parity versus, you know, not thinking about it. Have those conversations in your workplace to say, hey, how come we don't have more female programmers here? And, you know, be an advocate. There's like so many ways that we can positively impact the world. And when people say, well, I don't know if I can really make a difference. It's like, Never doubt the impact that one person can have in the world. In fact, it's the only way we've ever had change. So, yeah. Don't ever stop dreaming, Brianna. <laughs> and you either. I feel like we could probably go on for another couple of hours, but... <laughs> yeah, that's the danger of having me on a podcast, that's for sure. Yeah. So, instead of going for another couple of hours, I definitely want to have you back on if you want me to like dig into more like specific topics in the future on different things and Sure, give me give me a little bit to get my my own podcast up and running and then maybe we could talk about some some other cool stuff. Who knows? Who yeah. knows? That'd be very exciting. And if you need any help with podcast stuff, let me know. I'm coming quite the pro. <laughs> still making this up as I go along. But I've definitely gotten the hang of it. Well, you know what, Brianna? That's how we all start, to be honest. We we didn't know anything about running a studio before we started running the studio. You just do it. And and kudos for you and, and for anybody that's listening. That honestly is how everything in the world gets started in the beginning is people just do it and they learn from their mistakes. And the best thing you can do is say, hey, I made a mistake. Learn and move on. So don't dwell on the things that you feel shitty about. Just make something better than what you just made. And that's my tip of the day. Also, sometimes you have to try something to see if, if you like it. If you don't like it, don't keep doing it. If you do like it, keep doing it. I like podcasting. That's why I'm producing two on my own on top of a part-time job. 
There you go. And half. <laughs> uh, thank you again for having me on your show. Yeah, it's, it has been a blast and you will definitely be on again in the future. An Incomplete Guide to World Domination is directed and produced by Brianna Toybert as part of Pseudonym Social, a creative podcast network. Music is by Patrick Chester of Chester Studios. You can find more of his work at chesterstudios.net. If you would like to help support our show, you can find us at patreon.com slash pseudonymsocial. You can also leave a review on iTunes to make our show easier to find for those who need it. For more information on the other shows produced by Pseudonym Social, please check out our website at pseudonymsocial.wordpress.com.